You can turn to Matthew chapter number 20 this morning, and we'll continue where we we left off last week. And uh, that'll, again, if you're looking in one of the Pew Bibles, I think that's on about page 775. And uh, we mention this occasionally, but if you don't have a Bible or if you need one, um, feel free to take one of those. Um, It would be our gift to you this morning. But we'll be in Matthew chapter 20, and uh, we'll finish up this chapter today. You know, I was thinking this week as I was studying uh, Matthew, you can read it, sit down and read it in an hour and a half or so. Um, I do that occasionally uh, throughout our time just to keep keep my mind in the whole picture of where we're going. But uh, I, you forget oftentimes that it's been well over a year since we've looked at things like uh, the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And uh, they're very applicable to what Christ is teaching in this passage. So I want to start by reading from Matthew 5. You you don't have to turn there. You can follow along. I think it's on the screen. But just listen to some of these. These are the first four Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Every time we read those verses, we we can notice the radical difference between the outlook the outlook of those who Jesus calls blessed, those who are are children in His kingdom, uh, versus the outlook of of the world system. Now, the the culture and the comforts and all the the lifestyle of those in Jesus' day may have been much different than ours is now, two thousand years later, but they are always common threads, and one of those, especially among the larger culture of that day, which was mainly influenced by the Romans and the Greeks, one of those common threads was the concept that humility usually was interpreted as weakness, and pride often was interpreted as strength. What does it mean to be humble? Well, those four Beatitudes that we just read describe it well. Poor in spirit, mourning, meek, and hungry. All of those things come with an admission of need, uh, an admission of of insufficiency, and an outlook of, of seeking. And in terms of comparison as an outlook, those Beatitudes, if they are our mindset, they place us below rather than above. Whereas pride does the exact opposite. Pride says, I'm sufficient. Pride says, I'm above. Pride says, my experience or or my happiness is the goal. But what pride rarely does is take the form of a servant. Pride rarely, willingly takes second place in order to exalt someone else. Pride rarely looks to the best interest of others at the detriment of oneself. But as we will see in this passage today, that is exactly what Christ's goal is. Now we see in our text today an an example, really. Well, two examples, maybe. We see one that is an example of, of an attitude that tended towards pride. Now, I'm careful to say that it's not maybe an an overt or a blatant display of the worst kind of pride. But by seeing how Jesus responds, what we can tell is it was not the kingdom attitude that he saw, but that of the world. 
And may that be a simple reminder as we begin. So much of our lives as followers of Jesus Christ has to do with our attitudes. In every situation, there may not be a silver bullet answer. There may not be a quick fix for every problem or every conundrum, but there is always a righteous attitude to have, and that is the attitude of the servant, the attitude of humility. A couple texts to keep in mind as as we go forward, because Jesus and his disciples would have known these, and we do as well, from Proverbs. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You're probably familiar with that. Well, another one, it's very similar, Proverbs 11, verse 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. But what I want to see today is sort of a, the big idea is that greatness in the kingdom of Christ is not achieved in the same way as greatness in the kingdoms of this world. Whoever would be great must be a servant. And of course, that last bit comes right from Jesus' words in this passage. So let's pick up and read. Let's for now read verses 20 through 28 in Matthew chapter 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Well, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, before we even move on, I pray that you'd help us to, to see this teaching with, with open eyes. Uh, may we see ourselves honestly, but mostly would, would you give us the Holy Spirit to illuminate these words, that we can apply them and live them out in small ways, in big ways, and in ways that glorify you and point others to you, Lord. Would we not say that, that we've got this issue figured out. Lord, we always need growth. And uh, you've given us your word. It will not return to you without accomplishing what you want it. So I pray that you and your will and your grace would work through your word today. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we begin to go on this passage, the first thing we'll note there is a bold request. A bold request. And we said a moment ago that what we see is, is maybe not a, an, an all-out example of pride 
But there is at least some boldness there. And coupled with what Jesus addresses afterward, it gives us a a good example of of what not to do or maybe how not to think. In fact, I I toyed with calling this message uh, how not to be great in Christ's kingdom. But uh, Jesus, of course, turns it out, turns it around and gives us the positive lesson. So we're probably better to think of it in those terms. But we see in verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes to Jesus. Now, a little bit of a reminder, back in Matthew 4, when we saw the calling of of some of the disciples, we saw Jesus looking out and seeing in a boat two boys and their father, and it was James and John and their father Zebedee. So this is Zebedee's wife, or, or at least James and John's mother, and we can put some pieces together in places in scripture, and find out that her name is is Salome. She was one of the three who would carry spices to Jesus' tomb after his death, and they discovered it empty. We'll see more about her later, but whatever we learn about her, uh, we have to be careful because she does turn out to be a genuine follower of Christ. Whatever example of what not to do she gives us here Uh, we could easily find ourselves in the same conundrum. So we can learn from it. We can learn from it without being only critical. But we do have to take what the text tells us. And she comes with her two sons and kneels before Jesus. And essentially, to paraphrase, she says, Jesus, can I ask you for something? Now, her posture which we're told in the, in the passage, probably shows us that she knows her question is a big one and uh, maybe even indicates that she knows it, it's a risky question. It's not just a, an everyday question to ask. She comes before him kneeling in an honoring way, but there's somewhat of an angle behind that honor. And the way that she asks is probably familiar to us as well because sometimes we say things like this. We say to someone, will you promise me something? And hoping to get a a promise before we even tell them what the promise is going to be. Or we say, you have to promise not to tell anyone this. And if you're like me, your mind goes to, they murdered somebody. I know it. (laughs) And by the way, that often can be a trap, especially if it's coming from someone that you don't know very well. That was a side note for free. But anyways, we do things like this. We, before we even ask, we say, will you give me something? Will you do this? Will you do me a favor? And that's kind of what she's doing here. So Jesus says, well, what do you want? And she said to him, say, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. It's interesting because she doesn't really frame it as a question. She doesn't say, What could James and John do, you know, to make sure they had a good place, a good seed in the kingdom? Or, you know, maybe more officially, what is the process of getting the best seats in the kingdom? It's not even really a request. The way she words it is, is say that they will sit at your right hand. Now, how did she arrive at this? Did James and John put her up to it? Very likely. Uh, Was it her idea? Possibly both. We don't know exactly. Was it simply her her motherly instinct uh, trying to get the best for her children? 
And furthermore, how did she have the boldness to ask such a question? That's where my mind goes. Now, one possibility of that is that there are some clues in Scripture and as well as the history of tradition that tells us that Salome was was actually a sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And uh, you can do a little digging later if you want to look uh, at Matthew 27, Mark 15, and John 19. All of those things record a parallel account of the women that were at the cross. And uh, the clues there kind of give us that hint that, that Salome, the mother of James and John, was possibly a sister. So anyways, was there a was there a behind the scenes angle of 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 her having Mary's ear and that somehow trying to influence Mary's son into giving her nephews a prominent place? We're not sure. I don't want to attribute the worst kind of motives, but either way, it was bold. It was bold if it was coming from James and John, and it was bold if it's coming from their mother. Either way, a request for privilege always leaves a bad pl- a taste in your mouth. Um, we experienced this in, uh, in my four or five years on the school board. Occasionally, we get these kind of requests from a family or parents that for whatever reason, their child would have a privilege that others don't. And those kind of questions just always make you ask the basic thing. What if everybody asked for this? And that's what we can ask here. Well, what if everybody wanted the right and left-hand seat next to Jesus? It doesn't work. Now, that may be a negative thing, but we do have to point out that there is at least an element of, of a genuine faith here. Because think about it. Uh, The request itself may have been a little selfish, but it did hinge on the fact that James and John and their mother believed that Jesus was going to have this kingdom and that he was going to sit on the throne. It probably also tells us that James and John were still thinking about what Jesus said at the end of Matthew 19. You remember that a couple weeks ago? Jesus said when, when Peter asked, Lord, we've given up everything to follow you. What will we have? And he said to them in Matthew 19, 28, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. Now, we sort of ran out of time and didn't talk much about that. And we don't know exactly what Jesus was referring to. But we do know that there's a hint, and we've talked about this in Sunday school, of the 24 elders in the book of Revelation, that it might be. 12 representatives of the tribes of Israel, and 12 apostles. That's very likely. Regardless of its exact fleshing out and meaning, Jesus did make this promise, and James and John remembered it, and they probably believed it. Now, did they go too far in asking for the privilege, for the, for the right and left hand? Yes, they did. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the teaching that follows. But... There was at least faith involved there. And even here, we can apply this to our lives because we see something like this from the outside. And and if you're like me, you might say, I could never ask that. How would they ever ask that? But often we view life through the lens of, of looking for privilege or hoping for it. For instance, we know the promises that Jesus has made, promises of of persecution and trouble for his followers, promises of tribulation. 
But oftentimes we secretly hope that we might be able to escape those things. And an eye of privilege is never a healthy eye. An attitude of elevating ourselves above what is expected or normal or even promised. That does not reflect the attitude of Christ. But we go on and we see an honest response. And uh, there's honesty on the part of, of the brothers. There's also honesty on the part of Jesus. Let's see what they say. Well, first, apparently Jesus knows that this request probably came from James and John. At least it, it has the most impact on them. So he turns to them and he says, you do not know what you're asking in verse 23, 22, sorry. You do not know what you're asking. He doesn't immediately scold them. He doesn't give them a straight answer, but he does require them to think. Are you able to drink my cup? He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, what is this cup that Jesus is referring to? Well, the motif or the theme of of a cup is an imagery in the Old Testament usually has something to do with with God's wrath, with, with punishment. Now, it can refer to a cup of blessing. Psalm 23, for instance, my cup runs over. But here, the obvious connotation is that this is going to be a difficult cup to drink. So Jesus isn't asking, are are you able to receive the, the bountiful blessings and the life of ease that comes from being me? No, he's asking, are you able to bear what I am going to bear? Of course, he's referring then to his his suffering and his death. He just mentioned that a few verses earlier. And we'll get to this in a couple months, but in Matthew 26, when Jesus goes to the garden, he prays concerning this cup. Remember, going a little farther, Matthew 26, 39, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup of Jesus was ultimately that of of suffering and of death. Now, his would be unique in that he would bear the people's sins in his death. And in that way, we could answer truly the disciples could never drink that cup. They could never bear the cup of wrath for someone else like Jesus did. But Jesus knew that. And I think he's asking them here simply, do you know that you're going to have to die? That you're going to have to suffer? Now, James and John, with whatever understanding they had, they said, we are able. We can drink it. And I think they really meant that. I think they truly believed it. At that point, they would do anything to follow their master. 
There will be a test, though, that comes for, for these men and all the others. It would prove to humble them. It wouldn't be their last chance, but it would be a test. Later in the same passage of Matthew 26, James and John, with the rest of the disciples, would leave Jesus, and they would flee when he was arrested. At that point, at least, they were second-guessing. Are you able to bear? Are you able to drink this cup? But Jesus, he lets their answer sit there, and he says to them something interesting. You will drink my cup. You will drink it. Of course, after that scene in the garden where Jesus is arrested and after his death and his resurrection, and we look ahead, we know that both James and John would drink the cup of suffering. James as a martyr, one of the first in the book of Acts. And John, of course, would be horribly mistreated and exiled to an island, which is where he wrote the book of Revelation. Yes, James and John would drink the cup of suffering. But at this moment, I think Jesus knew they weren't quite ready. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. It's for those whom it's been prepared by my father. Now, Jesus does a couple things with this statement. One, he affirms what he's been doing all along, which is, which is doing the will of the Father, obeying him perfectly. In coming to earth, Jesus humbled himself, and he never despised that humility. He, he wore it and he bore it perfectly as our example, so that even though Jesus is very God himself, he gives us an example of submission that that we can only hope to follow. But second, he gives, again, another clue about how God and his kingdom works. God doesn't work on a, a first-come, first-served basis. It's, it's not that whoever wants to have the left-hand seat, as long as you're first in line for it, as long as you get your mother to sneak around behind the scenes and ask Jesus for it, you've got it. No. Now, in some way, there will be a way in which some of these men or one of them or someone will, will have this place in Jesus' kingdom. But it's not a political race to win those seats. It's by the gracious choice and preparation by the Father. May we never come to God in a political sense, trying to, to influence his grace by our standing, by our past record even, by our doing or by the, the good word of another. The only good word of another that counts is the good word of Jesus Christ, who poured out his blood on our behalf. But much like we saw last week, where God doesn't deal in wages, but in grace, we can say the same thing here, that, that God doesn't work with politics or bribes. God works in grace. And we, like James and John, need to learn and rest in the, the choices of God's wisdom. Whether we're on the right hand of Jesus in the, in the kingdom or whether we're sweeping the floor. Rather than trying to skew the kingdom to our favor, favor we must trust the holy and righteous God to do well. He will sort these things out. 
Well, this conversation gets bigger, and as we go forward, we see a quarrel. And now it's it's very brief, what we're given as a description, but it's also very strong. Look at verse number 24. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now, this little one sentence is, a, is fuel for the main thrust of Jesus' teaching that's going to come. But uh, we can say that the rest of the disciples weren't so gentle in their response as Jesus was. Somehow, word traveled back to these other guys, and once they heard what went down, it exploded. Now, we aren't told the dialogue, but we're given just one word, indignant. We can only imagine how this how this went. James and John come back to the group. Maybe they've got their heads hung and they're a little bit sheepish. And, uh, you know, this, the whispers start going around. Did you hear that they will ask for the right and left hand throne in the kingdom? They asked for that. Not only that, but they sent their mom to do it. Can you believe it? These guys are cowards and they want to be rulers. You can only wonder what this conversation between these 12 relatively young men probably went like. But they were indignant. Specifically, indignant means anger or wrath against something that is is perceived as wrong. Uh, In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is often used to describe God's holy wrath. But in the human sense, it's to be irate or incensed against the perceived injustice. And that's exactly how they felt. They felt slighted by their friends. They went around our back and tried to get what was not theirs to take. They felt betrayed. Now, as I was thinking about this interaction, I couldn't get a, a story from my childhood out of my mind, so I'll share it here. And it's this is an example of what not to do, okay? How not to be great in the kingdom. When I was uh, probably nine or ten, I don't remember, I was in uh, vacation Bible school at our church growing up, and they there was always sort of a friendly competition of of who could you know, say the most extra memory verses. You know, there were there was one a day, but then there was a whole list of other ones you could choose to say. And at the end of the week, if you'd said the most, you got a candy bar or something like that. Well, for a few years in a row, me and, and a, a good friend of mine, probably my best friend at the time, uh, we were always neck and neck in that competition. Well, one year he came up with the idea, hey, why don't we stop this being a competition and why don't we just you know, decide to have a tie. And uh, I forget what the number was, but, you know, we were going to do, say it was 35 or 40 of these extra verses. And he said, we'll both stop right here on the list. And then at the end of the week, it'll be a tie. It'll, it'll surprise everyone. Well, I went along with that. But then later I got thinking, that's a crummy idea. And without telling him, I just went ahead on and memorized the rest of the verses. And when it came to the end of the week and they, they announced who, uh, who memorized the most verses and he was expecting them to say, oh, it's a tie, both Dan and Aaron get the award. And when they just said my name, I can still remember the look on his face. He was indignant. What did you do? We had a deal. We were going to tie. It was going to be great. He felt slighted by me. That probably was a slight. Uh, Dan, if you're listening to this, I still feel bad about that. But anyways, we understand. Well, instead of coming and, and, and standing up for the other 10 or coming up and, and defending the James and John, what Jesus does is use the whole debacle 
as an opportunity to teach. And we see verse 25, Jesus called them to him. He called all of them. He said, come on, guys, let's let's calm down. He broke up the, the argument, so to speak, and he, he had a lesson. James and John may have erred first, but it was all of them who had turned out to have the wrong mindset, the wrong attitude. Now, Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. And he makes two comparisons with with the world system, specifically how, how the rulership in the world system works. The first thing he says is that the rulers in the world lord it over the, the people. In other words, there is, there is pride and arrogance in those who lead. Now, we can think of a lot of examples of this even in our own day, but one that may have been in their minds is the example of Nebuchadnezzar when Daniel and his friends were in Babylonian captivity And Nebuchadnezzar, this powerful ruler, built up a statue of himself and required everyone to bow down before it. That's an example of, of maybe even more of the schemes of the devil to get false worship, but it's an example of, of building oneself up in pride. And Jesus says, the rulers in the world, in the nations, they, they lord it over the people. They get a position of power, and they know that they've got it made, and everybody else knows it too. One element of how the world thinks of, of leading is building oneself up in order to be able to get to that position. So that's one comparison Jesus makes. But he makes another one too. He says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So the second aspect he points to is the flip side of the coin. Not only does the world system work through pride on the part of a ruler, but it also works through the respect of persons. In other words, leadership in the world is often a competition of influence or greatness, or power. We see it all the time in politics. If you have the right connections, you can be in leadership. If you're popular enough, you can be in leadership. If you have enough money, you can influence the way things go, and you can be in leadership. Jesus points to these two things as negative examples, pride and respect of persons. I was reminded of James chapter two. James follows much of what Jesus says as he sort of fleshes it out. And he writes, if a man wearing gold, a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you, you stand over there or, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? That's counter that we would 
not elevate those who are the great ones among us, but that we would have no respect of persons. And again, Peter, in Acts chapter 10, uh, you have to read the background for yourself, but it was after after dealing with Cornelius and his conversion and his testimony, and Peter's coming to realize how God is working in all kinds of people, especially among the Gentiles, he says this, Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. In other words, God is not a respecter of persons. And with that in mind, let's keep reading Jesus' words in Matthew 20. Look at verse 26. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Notice that simple injunction. Jesus gives them these examples of pride and of respect of persons. And he says simply, it shall not be so among you. That's both a command and a prediction. Because he says, those who will be great, they must be your servant. And those who would be first must be your slave. In other words, in Christ's kingdom, pride and respect of persons doesn't get you anywhere. In Christ's kingdom, being first doesn't get you the best seat in the house. In Christ's kingdom, politics don't work. In Christ's kingdom, humility is much to be preferred rather than all the greatness that you can muster. We as followers of Jesus must stay far away from this attitude when it comes to our dealings with our one another, with our relationships, and with our view toward God. God's kingdom doesn't work like the world system. Just like the physical world is greatly affected by the curse that we saw in Genesis 3. How death and disease and natural disasters afflict the entire globe. In the same way, the leadership structures of the world are also under that same curse. As we see arrogance and fighting and lying and scraping and doing anything possible to get to the top. Arrogance and pride and respect of of persons, those are not currency that is accepted in Christ's kingdom. Putting yourself up and boasting in yourself, vying for first position, those things are not legal tender in buying your way to the top. No, whoever would be great must be your servant. Is this how we think? Do we think in in our circumstances of life, how can I serve? How can I be a servant here? Do we think when when something changes and we're faced with a difficult moment, what would it take for me to model humility in this situation? Now, Jesus is not just giving us a backwards formula as if he's to say, if you really want to be number one, you've got to look as humble as you possibly can. Because we might... Twist it and do that, right? We all can feign humility. I know you do it, and I know I do it. But no, Jesus is saying, humility is what counts. That is what is most valued in his, in his accounting. Jesus keeps score different than the world does. 
Psalm number 73 is, is all about that kind of comparison. We won't read the whole thing, but, but David writes, and listen to his heart. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. David was dealing comparatively with the ways that the world system works. And we have to do the same thing. It was a struggle because there is no denying that it is a real temptation to think and act in the common ways of pride. Whether that be be climbing a, a corporate ladder, whether it be a, achieving more financial success, whether it's, it's keeping up with your neighbors, or whether it's simply a, avoiding looking bad in other people's eyes. It's so easy to look outward and be depressed at how others in their unrighteousness are succeeding. But David goes on, though, later in the psalm, verse 16, he says, but, but when I thought how to understand this, it seems to be a, weary, a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. David says, essentially, it didn't make any sense. I couldn't justify it in my head. I could not imagine being okay with this until I went to God and got his perspective. And this is so often true. We come up against various things in life and we say, I just can't imagine having a, a better attitude about this. I can't, I can't just imagine letting this go in my mind until we come to Christ's perspective. And it radically changes us. Toward the end of the psalm, David goes on to describe the end of the arrogant. And he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is the mindset of servanthood, of humility, of contentment for David to say, yes, I still see the wicked prospering, but there's nothing on earth I desire, Lord, besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, Lord, are my strength and you are my portion. David's attitude was the attitude of the blessed ones in Matthew 5 that we read earlier, poor in spirit, hungry, meek. He says, God is my portion. Uh, I don't need that leadership position. God is my portion. He satisfies me. I don't need to be seen as great. God is my portion, and he satisfies my need of recognition. I don't need to be seen or justified in the eyes of others. God has justified me, and he is my portion. I don't need to exalt myself and earn the accolades. God is my portion and my reward. 
We can apply this in all of life as we have. We can also apply this in the church also. If you've been a a Christian a while and you've been to various churches, you may have seen churches where leadership positions are, are fought for or politicked over or campaigned for. But don't you know that even in church leadership, the entire point is to be a servant? Matt and Dennis and myself as as elders and teachers, we're not that great. (laughs) I mean, honestly, but we are your servants and we're Christ's servants. Sean is a deacon and, well, the very word means servant. And when it comes time for more or other men and women to serve in various roles, may we never look at it as a competition as a chance of greatness, as a, as a chance to be in the public eye of this little church, may we be mindful of servanthood. And then we read as Jesus goes on and gives the ultimate example in verse 28, where he says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus refers to himself as son of man. This messianic title, it's a title that emphasizes that Jesus is truly man. That he came, though he is God, he took on true flesh. He he didn't appear to be a real man, but he had real flesh and bones. He was truly a man just like We are with the the same physical strength, the same physiological makeup, with a real human will and emotions, the whole thing, except without sin. And he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Think of it. Christ, our Savior, as a servant. Now, first and foremost, he was serving, as he models so well, he was serving the Father in obedience to him. But in a real sense, he lovingly and joyfully served others. Think of the the children in the last passage, the last chapter that we read. When others were pushing them away, he said, no, bring them to me. Think of the multitudes that he fed when it would have been easier to say, no, just Send them home. They can eat there. No, he fed them. Think of the man with leprosy that he healed. Not only did he heal him, but he touched him. When that was forbidden and and despised. And we even can see the very next story in this chapter as an example. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And listen, the crowd rebuked them, telling them, be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord. Lord, let our eyes be opened. 
And in pity, he touched their eyes. Jesus became a servant. Matt read that passage earlier from Philippians 2. And just an excerpt from it. He said, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a, to a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see the mindset, the, the attitude the attitude of Christ that we are to take on is an attitude of humility, the attitude of a servant. Now, we could never possibly humble ourselves as much as Jesus did, but we can have an attitude like his, which we read there, is ours only in Christ Jesus. The apostles would all face extreme opposition, and for most of them, they would be killed for Jesus. And it was for them death as servants. They simply served by giving their last. And that's what Christ did in the greatest sense. He became obedient to the point of death. Jesus gave his last, and he did it in a way that was miraculous because he said the son of man came to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to purchase many, to pay the debt for many. It was the father's will that Jesus would come and it was the father's wrath that needed to be satisfied. You remember Isaiah 53, 10? It was the will of the Lord to crush this servant. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Yes, Jesus' death, the cup that he had to drink, the ultimate task that he has been alluding to now several times, and they're on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus gives them this picture of suffering for what greatness looks like. Jesus suffered as a servant in order to pay the ransom for your wrath, your sin, your punishment. He made atonement for your sin willingly with a servant's attitude. And as those who have received this gift, is this our attitude? We cannot pay for the sins of others. Only the perfect sinless one could do that. But he calls us to look with the mindset that he looked with. He called us to see others with the eyes that he saw with. Because we cannot pay for the sins of others. Only Jesus can do that. But in Christ, we can love and forbear and forgive We cannot make atonement for the the griefs of others, but we can patiently endure in Christ when we are called on to do so. And most of all, we can never, never seek first place for ourselves. We must seek simply to do God's will. 
and allow him to reconcile things in his perfect accounting. We read it a minute ago, the end of this chapter, as a wonderful, compassionate example, because do you see what the crowd did? There were all these people following Jesus as he, he left Jericho and still walking toward Jerusalem. All these people, they're walking on this road. They see the blind men on the side of the road, and they're thinking, oh, don't let them say anything. Just let them stay there. Don't let them be a, a bother. And they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us. And the, and the people rebuked them. They said, stop. Leave us alone. We're heading somewhere. But Jesus stopped. If the Lord of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the one to whom God the Father says, sit here until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If that Lord can stop on his journey to help two despised poor blind men, if that Lord can come not to be served, but to serve. Then when we're tempted to exalt ourselves, to lift ourselves up, to, to, to lord it over people, or to, to have respect of persons like the system of the world would tell us to do, we would hear the words of Jesus where he says, it shall not be so among you. And we've been hearing this message all the way through from the end of chapter 19 into chapter 20. That's the message. The last will be first. Greatness in the kingdom of Christ does not look like greatness in the kingdoms of this world. And it is not achieved through the schemes and the ploys of our flesh. No. Whoever would be great must be a servant to grasp this to receive this in christ to live in such a way would radically affect our relationships would radically affect our church family and for it to spread through the gospel radically affects the world but in order for any of that to happen it must radically affect you and me and that is my prayer Lord, help us with this.